uh, or later. And all the printed and audio messages are either on the church website or we're transitioning to a site called sermonaudio.com as well to put them on there. I want to cover verses 24 to 27 of Colossians 1 this morning. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister or a servant, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, since Paul in our text is talking about his ministry, I thought for a brief while about titling this message, How to Be a Good Minister. And then I thought, if people read that in advance, they might decide it was a good week to skip church, uh, and maybe not even to read the message. Uh, being a good minister might be of interest to seminary students or to fellow pastors or missionaries, but... You might ask the question, well, what relevance does being a good minister have for uh, those who are not in so-called full-time ministry? And I believe the answer is, it is extremely relevant for every Christian. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, as I trust most of you do, then the truth is you are just as much a minister of Jesus Christ as I am. The word minister meaning servant. Every Christian is a servant of Jesus Christ. Every Christian has been given spiritual gifts that they are to use in serving the Master. And in case you haven't read the list lately, church bench warmer is not one of the gifts. Uh, that's not an option. And so you have a gift that you are to employ in serving the Lord. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, okay, but still, I've never been to seminary. And, you know, I'm not a full-time Christian worker as you are who's paid uh, for laboring for the Lord. And so I can't devote the time to it that you do. That's all true, but I would remind you that the man who wrote our text, the Apostle Paul, never went to seminary, and he was not a full-time Christian worker. He supported himself making tents so that he could labor in the gospel. But Paul saw his ministry as a stewardship given to him by God, and he knew that he would give account to God one day for how he fulfilled that stewardship. And so he worked hard to be a good minister or servant. He wanted to serve Christ well, and so should you want to serve Christ well. 
Now, perhaps you've never thought about it, but I think the question, how can I be a good minister of Jesus Christ, ought to be on your mind all the time. It really ought to concern you. Because Paul says, one day soon, every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the deeds that we do in the body. How did we do? Uh, How did we use our time? How did we use the financial resources that God entrusts to us? Uh, How did we use our spiritual gifts? Now, you may still be thinking, well, yeah, I know that, but you know, my gifts aren't that great. I mean, I could never get up and preach a sermon week to week as as you do, you would say to me. Uh, you might say, I'm not gifted as an evangelist. Or, you know, God hasn't given me millions of dollars to invest worldwide to spread the gospel. And so I just haven't been given all that great of gifts. Now, if that describes you, then you really need to be careful Because in Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25, and I'll remind you, a talent wasn't an ability in the parable, you know, to do something. A talent was a large unit of money. And so in the parable, this master's going away and he entrusts to one servant five talents, a sizable amount of cash, and tells him to use that for his purpose while he's gone. He gives two to a second servant. Same thing, gives one to a third. Well, when he comes back, the man who had been given the five had invested the five and made five more. And he receives commendation from the master. The man who had been given two invested the two. And same thing, the master commended him. But the man who had been given the one had buried it, hidden it somewhere, and preserved it, and he gave it back to the master. And he received a strong condemnation. The master called him a wicked, lazy, worthless slave. And then, it's kind of alarming, but then he consigned him to be cast into the outer darkness where He says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it seems to me that the clear warning of that parable is the servant with only one talent is in the greatest danger of not using it. He'll say, ah, what's one? Hasn't been that much. And so he doesn't use that one. And it seems to me the warning about being thrown into the outer darkness would say, if you're not serving Christ at all, you better check to see if you know Christ at all. Because if you know Christ, you must serve Christ. Even if you only have one talent, you've got to employ that to make one more. You've got to be involved in serving the Lord. And so this question again, how can I be a good minister or a good servant of Jesus Christ is relevant for every person. And Paul's answer here is that we serve Christ well by exalting him in every way. Now, you remember Paul is writing against the backdrop of these false teachers who are infiltrating or at least influencing the Colossian church. They diminished the person and work of Christ. And so as we've seen, Paul labors in chapter 1 to lift Christ high, 
to exalt the Savior, to show that Christ is preeminent over all. The false teachers also, I think, knew that Epaphras, who had brought the gospel to the Colossian people, um, that he was influenced by Paul or discipled by Paul. And so probably to build themselves up, the Colossian heretics had pulled Paul down or put Paul down. They probably had said something like, well, you know, guys, uh, Paul's in jail. He's in jail. And if the Christ that Paul serves is the sovereign of the universe, and if he's all-powerful, as Paul proclaims, how come his great servant is in prison? Now, do you want to follow a jailbird, or do you want to follow us? You see, so they were making that kind of an argument here. And so, in verse 23, we didn't read that verse from last week, but at the end of that section, Paul says, I, Paul, was made a minister or servant of the gospel. And then in verses 24 to 29, and we can only cover through verse 27 this morning, Paul expands on that theme, and he shows us how he exalted Christ in his ministry. And he shows us how we can serve Christ well in whatever he's given us to do for him. Um, He shows us in verse 24 how we can exalt Christ in our trials. Then in verse 25, how we can exalt Christ in our service. And in verses 26 and 27, how we can exalt Christ in our message. So first of all, in verse 24, we exalt Christ in our trials by enduring them joyfully for his sake and for his church's sake. Verse 24 again, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, he says, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, filling up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions. Now, that's a difficult verse for two reasons. Number one, it's difficult to um, explain or understand And number two, it's difficult to apply it. First of all, let's try and explain it. When you come to a difficult verse, one principle of interpretation is this. Always interpret the difficult in light of the clear. In other words, there are some verses that are so clear you just can't even dodge them. They're they're plain. Well, the difficult verse is not going to contradict what is clear. And it is abundantly clear in the rest of Paul's writings in all of the New Testament that Jesus Christ's suffering on the cross was complete. It provided total, final salvation for every believer. Um, There's nothing lacking in Christ's suffering on the cross. So that's one principle we bring when we try to interpret when Paul says he's supplying what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. You remember that just before he died, as he hung on the cross, Jesus cried out, John 19.30, it is finished. And so the atonement that Christ provided for sinners was complete. In Colossians, we've seen this already. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Paul explains that in Christ we have an inheritance. 
He says that we have been rescued from Satan's domain of darkness. We've been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So everything has been taken care of through the cross of Christ. When we go further in chapter 2, verse 10, we'll see that in him, in Christ, you have been made complete. He will go on later in chapter 2 to show that uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ provided complete victory over Satan and all of his forces, that all of our sins have been forgiven. And you could go on and on. Romans, um, the book of Hebrews, all through the New Testament, it makes it clear that what Christ accomplished on the cross for our salvation is complete. And so there is nothing that Paul or anyone else needed to add to it to make that more sufficient. And so we have to take this in the context here and say, Paul is not here talking about salvation, but rather he is talking about service. That's his theme. In fact, the word that is translated afflictions in verse 24 is not used anywhere else in the New Testament of Christ's suffering on the cross. Um, So Paul does not mean, and I believe the New Testament never teaches, that some way by our suffering we can somehow add merit to what Christ did. There's no need to do that. Christ accomplished a full and complete salvation. So then, what does Paul mean? Well, a lot of suggestions have been offered I think two views offer the best explanation. The first one is that Jesus clearly taught that his sufferers must follow, must, excuse me, his followers must suffer because of their identification with him. Um, He is the head, we are the body. And if we are one with him and he suffered, we're going to suffer. You remember in John 15, verses 20 and 21. Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things, he says, they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Also, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is Uh, final discourse on future things. Uh, He prophesied that before he returned, there would be this time of unprecedented suffering for his followers. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 6, John gets a glimpse into heaven, and he sees the martyrs there. And they're crying out to the Lord, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And the Lord basically says, give them a white robe, tell them to rest a while. And then he adds, Revelation 6:11, just rest until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. It's a startling verse in that what it's saying is God has a number of martyrs And that number will be completed. And when it is, Jesus will come, Revelation 19. He will come in power 
and crush all of his enemies and reign forever. And so um, there's a sense in which Christ's sufferings then must be filled up or completed by his body, the church, and that when the church suffers, Christ himself is suffering. Remember what Paul learned on the Damascus Road. Uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul went, huh? I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting the church. And the Lord said, yes, you're persecuting me because I am one with the church. So that's one sense in which the church is completing what Christ suffered, uh, filling up the, the number of martyrs that God has determined. There's a second sense also, though, in which Christ's sufferings do not need completion in terms of propitiation, as I've explained, but rather in terms of propagation, that is, spreading the good news. On the one hand, Christ's death provided full atonement for everyone who believes, but we have to take that message to all the nations, to all the world. And people cannot believe that message of Christ unless someone tells them. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 14 where he says, Well, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Uh, William Barclay has a helpful illustration here at this point, I think, where he affirms that the work of Christ is done and completed and no one can add to it. But he supposes a great scientist or a great doctor who labors hard all of his life and really ruins his health to provide a cure for a serious disease. Well, that discovery remains useless unless it's taken out of the laboratory and taken to the people with the disease. And so the doctor has completed his work, and yet there is a sense in which his work is not complete unless it is spread to those who need to, to apply it. And so those who take it to others may sweat, they may toil, they may risk their lives to take it around the globe. And they aren't adding to the scientist's work, but they are rather completing his suffering by their suffering in taking the cure to those who need it. So the thing lacking in Christ's afflictions um, is not the full salvation that he provided on the cross, The thing lacking is taking the full salvation around the world on the Great Commission. And his followers have to suffer as they struggle against the world forces of darkness in going to all nations with the gospel. Now, given that that's Paul's meaning, it's still difficult to apply it, especially here in America. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm guessing that very few of us know what it means really to suffer for the gospel's sake. Uh, Probably none of us have been thrown in prison, beaten. Uh, Obviously, none of us have been martyred. We're all here. Uh, We we just don't know that. Our brothers and sisters in other countries, if you read Voice of the Martyrs magazine, you know those dear people are suffering as I speak for the sake of the gospel. 
the way things are going in this country, we may be joining them soon. Uh, we're losing our freedoms very rapidly. But meanwhile, how can we apply this verse to us now? Well, first of all, we need to note that Paul is not just speaking about suffering for the gospel's sake. He's talking about suffering joyfully for the gospel's sake. Suffering joyfully. Um, He was in prison, and yet he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And while he was in that imprisonment, he wrote the book of Philippians that's just bursting with joy as Paul suffered. And Paul knew that by suffering and rejoicing, he would strengthen the Colossian church as they faced persecution. They would look at Paul as an example and say, Man, if he can rejoice in prison... We can endure this hardship for Christ with a joyful attitude. Also, as you may remember, our Lord told us in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 11 and 12, He said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you for uh, because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I believe his words there give us a hint of how we can then apply this in our lives here and now. Um, We haven't been beaten. We haven't uh, been imprisoned yet for our faith. We certainly haven't died for our faith. Uh, Maybe if it comes to that, I hope the Lord will give us grace to, to rejoice in that. But I would predict, if you are serving the Lord, you probably have suffered some sort of insult or some sort of uh, false words that were spoken against you because of Christ. You get involved serving, and you can expect you will be criticized. Maybe you're laboring upstairs with our kids. And somebody comes at you, about your ministry. (laughs) And, you you know, it's crushing. You just go, man, I spent hours this week working on my lesson, and I love these kids. And then what do I get? Flack. You know? Or maybe you're working in the kitchen uh, and uh, putting on a meal for everybody You know, something isn't quite right, and somebody gripes at you or complains at you. Or uh, perhaps, you know, you're doing something else. You're on a worship team, and somebody gripes about something wasn't quite right in the worship time or whatever. I, I predict however you serve the Lord, at some point you're going to catch it from somebody who either puts you down they don't know all the situation. They're going to attack you. It just it happens. So what do you do? Well, I've, I've seen Christians who say, fine, if that's what, what I'm going to get for this, I'm out of here. And they quit serving. I, I've seen some who leave the church over it, really. And the saddest is I've seen some who leave the faith. They just drop out of the faith altogether. Uh I've seen pastors who leave the ministry because of criticism. So what do you do? 
Well, first of all, of course, you ought to go to the critic and try and be reconciled to understand their point of view. Maybe they have a legitimate point you need to apply. Um, maybe they need to be corrected. I don't know. But, you know, first you go to your brother. You try and reconcile. But beyond that, it seems to me, privately, you need to rejoice. You need to rejoice. I went through a really, really hard time in my church in California a few years back. Hardest time in ministry that I'd had up till then. I have a file folder full of letters. I haven't read them since that time. Someday I might. Maybe after I retire. I don't know. But a file full of letters calling for my resignation, you know, just attacking me. And uh, I remember at that time, I came across Matthew 5, and I just was filled with joy as I thought, wow, this is the first time I've ever had to suffer for the Lord. And Jesus says, rejoice and be glad your reward in heaven is great because they persecuted the prophets before you. And so count it a privilege that you've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ when you catch flack or criticism, as you will. In some way, you're filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And when you endure trials joyfully for Christ's sake, then you exalt him. You exalt him. That's the first thing. Secondly, we exalt Christ in our service when we do it in the power of his spirit as stewards appointed by him. That's the point of verse 25. Paul says, of this church... I was made a minister. Remember, that word isn't stained glass. It means servant. I was made a servant according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now, twice, up in verse 23, just before our text, and then here in verse 25, Paul says that he was made a servant or he became Uh, a servant or a minister, and you ask, well, how did that happen? How did Paul become a servant of the gospel? Did he go into a counselor and take an aptitude test, and the results came back and said, you know, you ought to be a minister, man. That's That's your gift. That's your calling. Well, we know, no, that's not how it happened. Um, That's not how it happened. In Galatians 1, 15, Paul says this, that God set him apart from his mother's womb. So it was a God thing. And we read the actual story in Acts 9. Paul is approaching Damascus. He's going to persecute the church. And as he comes, there's this bright light from heaven. If he's riding a donkey, we don't know if he was that or walking. But I believe he fell to the ground. He was blinded. He heard a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul asks, who are you, Lord? And the Lord answers, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. So he gets up. (coughs) He goes into the city. Meanwhile, the Lord goes to Ananias, a faithful man, tells him, I want you to go to this particular street and find this man, Saul, lay your hands on him and pray for him so he'll receive his sight. And Ananias, understandably, is a little bit hesitant to do that for a terrorist. 
I mean, this guy is terrorizing the church. And the Lord assures him down in verses 15 and 16 of Acts 9. He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him, notice, how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So that's how Paul became a minister, a servant of the gospel. God laid hold of him, basically. And so Paul wasn't... Did you ever sing this song in Sunday school? I'm, I'm dating myself, but we used to sing, A volunteer for Jesus, a soldier true. Others have enlisted, how about you? And so on. And we would sing this song about being a volunteer for Jesus. Well, Paul wasn't a volunteer for Jesus. Paul was a conscript. See, he didn't sign up. He was drafted. You remember those old army posters where Uncle Sam's got his finger pointing out and says, I want you, you know, for the U.S. Army. Well, that's how Paul became a minister. Now, maybe you're again thinking, boy, I'm glad God hasn't called me into ministry. But remember what I said at the start. If you know Christ, he has. He has called you. Maybe not to get up and preach. Maybe not to go be a missionary or an evangelist or whatever. But he's given you spiritual gifts. He's given you time. He's given you money. And you're to strategically think through, how can I use what he has given me to advance his kingdom? Seeking first his kingdom and righteousness. And so whatever your gifts are are calling... um, That's what God has called you to do. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that he might fully carry out or literally fulfill the word of God? Well, I think we can learn something there about our service. When you track that phrase, fulfilling the word of God through the New Testament, two different texts jump out at you. First of all, in Romans 15, verses 18 and 19, Paul refers to what Christ has accomplished through him in the power of the Spirit. And then he adds these words, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have, here it is, fully preached or fulfilled the gospel of Christ. Same idea there. So he did it through the power of God, through the the power of the Spirit, and that's what enabled him to fulfill the gospel. Then in 2 Timothy 4.17 almost Paul's last words in the New Testament. He tells how the Lord strengthened him, and then he adds, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished. And so the idea there, the application is, however God has gifted you, you will only fulfill your calling if you rely on the power of the Spirit, if you trust in what God does through you. Not in your own strength, but in his strength. Remember in the 15th chapter of John, how Jesus said, uh, unless you abide in me, you can't accomplish anything. But if you abide in me as a branch in the vine, then my life will flow through you and you will bear much fruit. And so whatever God has given you to do, again, uh, you do it joyfully in reliance upon His Holy Spirit, 
You do it seeking to glorify the Lord who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light through the gospel. And so your ministry is not, this is important, your ministry is not about fulfilling you. Your ministry is about fulfilling the word of God, about glorifying the Lord through whatever it is he's given you to do. Set up chairs, help with a meal, work with our kids. You know, help with the college group, whatever the ministry may be, you do it as unto the Lord because he has rescued you and you do it in his power. So first way we exalt Christ, we serve Christ well by exalting him. First way we exalt him in our trials as we endure them joyfully for his and his church's sake. Secondly, we exalt him in our service when we do it in the power of his spirit And we do it as stewards because he's appointed us. He gave us gifts and we have to use them. Finally, we exalt Christ then in our message as we proclaim God's revelation about the indwelling Christ and the hope of glory for everyone who believes. And that's his point in verses 26 and 27. He continues um, after talking about preaching the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul calls his message the mystery. I believe he is poking at the false teachers here, Because the false teachers drew people in by saying, we've got a secret. We've got a mystery, and only we know it, and if you'll come into our circles, we'll let you in on the secret. And Paul here is instead saying the gospel message, and especially the part of the gospel, that the Gentiles would be included on equal footing with the Jews, it's a mystery. Not in the sense that it's a secret knowledge, but he means it was not revealed in the Old Testament. Now it has been revealed. In the Old Testament, there are a few texts that indicate that Gentiles will be saved, especially in Isaiah. But God didn't reveal that the Gentiles would be on equal footing with the Jews and have all the privileges that the Jews have, one body in Christ with them. And so when Paul says Christ in you in verse 27, in this context, I think he especially means Christ in you Gentiles, in you Gentiles. And for Paul, this was a glorious truth. Remember, Paul was the ultimate Jewish bigot, you know? So Christ in you Gentiles? Whoa, that was a startling truth, and I fear we don't appreciate it. Do you realize this? If you'd been born before Christ, you would have been, at best, a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Gentiles could be proselytes if they were circumcised. But in the temple, there was a court of the women and Gentiles, and then there was about a waist or chest-high wall, and it had a sign on it. And it said, if you are not a Jewish man and you go beyond this wall... Your death is your fault. They would kill you. 
take you out and stone you. That's what happened when Paul, in the book of Acts, they thought, wrongly, he had brought some Gentiles beyond the wall. And so they rioted and wanted to kill Paul. You could not go beyond that wall of partition. And as I said, before Paul got converted, he was the most ardent defender of that discrimination, of that prejudice to say, we are Jews by birth. <clears throat> we are better than those Gentile riffraff, even the converts. They have second place in the kingdom. Then Paul got saved. And God revealed to him this glorious truth that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews, that the wall of partition has been removed. Paul mentions that in Ephesians 2, 14. And as he writes in, in Colossians 3, 11, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, uh, between circumcised and uncircumcised. That's a radical statement for Paul to make. Barbarian, Scythian, um, slave and freeman. He says Christ is all and in all. And that means Christ is in every believer and every believer is in Christ. And practically what it means is this. There is absolutely no basis for racism in the church of Jesus Christ. Period. It is a tragedy that racism has been promoted in the evangelical church, especially in the South. It's just unbiblical. And so we exalt Christ in our message when we proclaim the glorious riches of Christ indwelling every person from every race who trusts in Jesus Christ. Equal footing for all. <clears throat> now Paul says, the riches of the glory of the gospel, he's just piling up words here that are hard to expound on, riches of the glory of the gospel, he says, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, I know that every one of you who knows Christ knows that those words are true. I know they're true also. That when you trust Christ, he dwells in you, and there's the promise of glory ahead. We'll all be in heaven in glory with him. We all know that. But do we really? know that? Do we really practice that each day? You think about this past week. Would it have gone any differently if you had realized moment to moment, the living Christ dwells in me and I'm going to be with him in glory shortly? I predict we wouldn't have gotten impatient we wouldn't have been frustrated. We wouldn't have been angry. We wouldn't have been grumbling. We wouldn't have been depressed if we had been filled with the glorious thought, Christ dwells in me, and I'm going to be with him in heaven very, very shortly. Those are life-changing truths. You know, would we have spent our time as we spent our time this week if we had thought, Christ is in me. And heaven is ahead. And I'm going to be with him. Would our hearts have grown cold in our devotion to him? Where we went, oh, I don't know. Read the Bible. Pray. I don't want to do that. You know, I'll look at my email on my iPhone. Or whatever. Would our attitude have been that if we had thought, Christ is in me. And heaven is shortly ahead. 
I'll be with him in glory. It's just a life-changing truth. You see, Christianity isn't primarily about rules, although there are rules, and it's not primarily about uh, religious ideas, although there's certainly sound doctrine all through the Word. It's primarily a living, personal relationship with the risen Christ who dwells in you and you in Him, and He has called us to share His glory. And so we exalt Him when we proclaim His indwelling presence for all who believe and the hope of heaven ahead that is relevant to every person because, as I've said often, the statistics on death are very impressive. We're all going to die shortly, but we have the hope of glory. We have that hope. I uh, graduated from college many decades ago, and yet I still have this recurring dream, and I've read that it's common among college people Some of you this week are facing finals. And here's the dream. I dream that I'm in college and I have a full load and it suddenly dawns on me. I haven't been going to a particular class all semester and I haven't been doing the assignments and the final is coming and I don't even know where the class meets and I got to take the final and I'm going to flunk. Any of you had that dream? I have it. Yeah, several of you have. Now what I dream is I have to preach Sunday. And I'm unprepared. And I walk in and the sanctuary is disheveled and a mess. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I don't know what I'm going to say. And, you know, so it's kind of transferred on me. It's the same idea. I am not ready for the big exam. Okay? Not ready. Well, if you know Christ, then you're enrolled in a course. And the course is called Ministry 101. You are a minister, a servant of Jesus Christ. Maybe for some of you, this is the first time it's dawned on you, uh uh-oh, I'm in that class. And I've got assignments that I have to do. And there's a final ahead. I'm going to stand before the Lord who's going to say, what'd you do with that talent? What'd you do with it? How'd you use it this semester? And so your grade is going to be based on, did you exalt Christ in every way you could in whatever he has gifted you and given you to do? Did you exalt him in your trials by rejoicing for Jesus' sake and filling up that suffering as you joyfully proclaim the gospel to those who have no hope? Did you exalt him in your service? By doing it in the power of his spirit, realizing I'm just a steward. He's given me this to do. I'm doing it for him. Did you exalt him in your message by proclaiming that Christ indwells you, that heaven, glory is ahead, and that if people will trust him, they can have Christ living in them and the hope of heaven as well. So remember, you're in that course. You're in the ministry, and the exam is ahead. But by the power of Christ... You can ace it. You can get a good grade and hear him say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Father, I pray you would help each of us to be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us. I know I fall short often, and I thank you for your grace. I pray especially if anybody's here who's never put their trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, you would impress on them the need to do so ASAP. 
It's urgent because life is tentative and death is certain. And so I pray that nobody would be at ease who is outside of Christ and the full salvation he gives. And I pray, Lord, if any of your servants are kind of not engaging in the course, they're not doing the assignments, that you would stir them up to say, Lord, what is it you've given me to do? And that we would all do it joyfully, even when persecuted. That we would all do it as good stewards in the power of your spirit. That we would all be proclaiming the glorious salvation that you have given freely to all who trust you. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.